The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a show that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview a high-profile public figure. In each show, I also highlight an exceptional company, organization, charity, or even an individual that does great work in the community. After the headlines, I have two interviews for you. First one with Congresswoman Linda Sanchez, and the second one with Dilman Abdulkader, the co-founder of the American Friends of Kurdistan. Here are some headlines from over the weekend and as of this morning. A white Atlanta police officer shot and killed a black man after an altercation on Friday night, sparking renewed protests in the city. The police officer involved, Garrett Rolfe, was fired Saturday after the chief Erica Shields resigned uh, as a fallout from the shooting uh, that swept the department. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Friday announced changes to the Affordable Care Act that reverse protections for transgender people added by President Barack Obama's administration in 2016. The Obama-era rule governing enforcement of Section 1557 of the ACA had defined gender as one's internal sense of gender, which may be male, female, neither, or a combination of male and female. The announcement signaled the return to the original text of the law. The number of coronavirus cases and hospitalizations have gone up in some states, a bleak reminder that pandemic that's infected more than 2 million people is not over. More than 115,000 people have died from COVID-19 in the United States, according to the Johns Hopkins University. As of Saturday, coronavirus cases were still increasing in 18 states, several of which saw record or near record highs. In 17 states, the numbers were trending downward and numbers remained steady in 13 states. Leading U.S. public health expert and White House Coronavirus Task Force member Dr. Anthony Fauci has said that the U.S. may not see a second wave of cases of COVID-19. We're really doing a financial comeback. The jobs numbers were fantastic. Now we'll have some other job numbers come up over the next few weeks and we'll see how that goes, but I think it's really good and we're on our way to a very big comeback. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Today's Let's Get Blunt is a continuation of last week's topic, which is California's Employment Development Department, also known as EDD. After I talked about it on the show last week, I received a few emails, so I went digging a little bit more and did some research and found out that the problem is even bigger than I originally imagined. Tens of thousands of people in California are still waiting for not just a paycheck, but even a correspondence from EDD since March 1st. And, it, you know, it's no secret I've, I've praised Governor Newsom uh, many times for the way he's handled uh, COVID-19 um, and different things that the state has gone through. But I feel like this is something that something should have been done 
about this from the governor, something substantial, so that so many people are not suffering as a result. The second person in charge of all of this is California Labor Secretary Julie Su. A lot of people have said that they have written to her, they have written to other people in her uh, department, uh, but no response. And it, it's a huge issue. There are multiple, multiple Facebook groups that are formed to address and to talk and for people to vent and uh, share their experiences and their struggles and challenges, perhaps exchange information. But the bottom line is that a lot of people are not getting the help. And they're all very sympathetic to the fact that this is an unprecedented uh, time and EDD has received more cases and applications than ever before, perhaps. But are people not to pay their rent or mortgage or bills for three and a half months almost? That doesn't work either. So something needs to happen. Someone needs to step up. And the buck ends with Governor Newsom on this, I feel like, to really help people who are suffering. So there is my bluntness today talking about the one weakness that I think Governor Newsom is facing right now, and that's uh, EDD's failure to help Californians. Let's get blunt. A former labor lawyer born and raised in Orange County, California, Congresswoman Linda Sanchez represents California's 38th Congressional District, elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 2002. A lifelong progressive, Congresswoman is the first Latina to serve on the powerful House Committee on Ways and Means and the House Judiciary Committee. In addition to co-founding the Congressional Labor and Working Families Caucus, Congresswoman Sanchez has served on the following committees, Judiciary, Ethics, Oversight and Reform, Small Business, Education and Labor, Veterans Affairs, Foreign Affairs, and the Select Committee on Benghazi. Good morning, Congresswoman. How are you? I'm well. How are you, Vic? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for joining me on The Blunt Post with Vic. I appreciate it. Sure, no worries. Happy to be here. Yeah, so there's so much going on in general in our country, obviously, and and you're in the middle of it. So first, I just want to ask you, since things change on a daily basis, uh, we've had the recent movement that happened, unfortunately, after the murder of George Floyd and a few others prior to that, which has morphed into a movement. And prior to that, we've dealt with a COVID, which is an ongoing thing. So from where you stand, your perspective and your insight, where do you think we are? How do you reflect on all of this? That's an excellent question. And I really feel like right now, America is experiencing a moment of national anguish. Um, because, you know, in the past few months, we've endured stay-at-home orders, job losses, uh, physical and mental stress. Um, some have lost family members or friends or neighbors to COVID. And just when it seemed like we were starting to kind of turn the corner on that, um, we saw the just disturbing images of the murder of George Floyd um, by those who are sworn to protect us. So, um I feel like America is coming to a point of reckoning um, and, 
you know, we've seen thousands of Americans peacefully protesting around the nation, and I support that 100%. Um, we have got to start dealing with the systemic racism that exists in our country, uh, because that exists in our criminal justice system, in education and housing, and in healthcare, as COVID-19 has shown us. Well said. I was going to ask you about how do you see race relations? And then second, the way law enforcement conducts itself in terms of police brutality or lack thereof, hopefully in the future. Uh, Are you optimistic about that? And how do you see this movement having changed or improved that? You know, I will say I am very optimistic about... um you know, dealing with the racism that exists in our country, because in order to deal with that, you have to admit that it exists. And for the first time, we are seeing polling that shows that a majority of white Americans believe that there is a systemic racism in our country. That was not true 10 years ago. Um, And so we have an opportunity to really transform the way that our communities are policed and i i am hopeful because you are seeing very diverse crowds of people making their voices heard about the need to address this and it's not just communities of color it's not just black and brown people white people are standing up and saying that this needs to change um so we see momentum and um this week for example um the congressional black caucus and the House Judiciary Committee introduced the Justice and Policing Act, which is going to take key steps to achieve transformational structural change to combat the pattern of violence. And I'm very optimistic. Fantastic. Uh, I like that you don't hold back. You were very blunt when you used the, the word or the phrase moment of reckoning, because that's exactly what it is. 2020 has um, probably become a pivotal year in our history when we reflect back. I want to, Congresswoman, if I may, just change topics just a bit because you supported HEROES Act. And we are, you know, in my opinion, we're still in the honeymoon stages of uh, COVID-19 and its aftermath because I I feel that kind of a very challenging period is ahead of us. And members of Congress, such as yourselves, have fought for as much as you can for the American people, especially the working class, the middle class, and the poor. And you voted for the HEROES Act. Um, And so in terms of that, because there is still a great need for people um, to get help beyond the first $1,200 check that they received, Uh, How do you see that changing or improving going forward? Yes, if there's anything that I know, it's that we are not out of the woods with COVID yet. Um, The May jobs report shows that there is still urgent, urgent need for relief. And we, I firmly believe that we need the Senate to take up the HEROES Act to protect lives and the livelihoods of families across this country. I mean, you're looking at the tragic milestone that more than 110,000 Americans are dead from coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And so long as the federal response and the Trump administration continues to fail to provide the testing and the tracing needed to stop the deadly spread of that virus, those numbers are not going to, go, you know, are not going to stop. Tens of millions of Americans are still 
out of work. We have unemployment numbers that are worse than the Great Recession. And the first package of relief that Congress provided is going to expire soon. And the need for the relief still remains. On top of all of that, there are almost 600,000 layoffs in state and local government. Those are massive job losses in critical state and local services in the last month alone. And if state budgets don't have relief, um, you are going to see crushing budget shortfalls. That means even more layoffs. So we can't take our foot off the gas. We need the Senate to pass the HEROES Act. And let me tell you, the HEROES Act isn't isn't going to solve everything either. We're going to need additional um, legislation to try to help with the economic aftershocks of COVID-19 because COVID-19 cases are still climbing um, and there's still large economic hits that are happening all over the country. So we can't pat ourselves on the back and say our mission is accomplished just yet. There is much more that I think we need to do. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you're listening to my interview with Congresswoman Linda Sanchez. So are we waiting for the Senate and the GOP leadership at this point for HEROES Act? Absolutely. We are waiting for the Senate to act. And initially, Mitch McConnell was so cavalier, he kept saying, oh, we'll let the states declare bankruptcy. Well, that means that teachers and transport workers and, you know, EMTs all get laid off if states go go bankrupt, or I should say if local governments go bankrupt. Um, Now, I think he's beginning to get the, you know, he's beginning to understand that we can't let this happen. We need to provide um, funding for state and local governments um, because they provide, you know, the necessary services. Um, so my hope is that enough pressure will force the Senate to take up the HEROES Act. Um, he seems to think that they, you know, more relief is not needed, but you talk to any family um that is, has experienced a job loss because of COVID-19, and they will tell you, um, we can't pause. We, we need to act. Well, his state uh, is doing well because per capita, it's the recipient of one of the highest federal funding. Uh, so he's uh, taking care of his own state and telling other states to declare bankruptcy. It's a very sad state. Senator Connell has uh, disappointed us so many ways, but you're in the solution and, and so many members of Congress, especially in California, are really, they exemplify what leadership means. Uh, and you've been a supporter of the act, which is providing essentials for frontline workers and not forgetting them. So I just want to see if you can elaborate on, on the act and what it's doing. Sure. Well, the HEROES Act has some really great provisions in it. Um, It provides $75 billion for testing, tracing, and treatment. A piece of of legislation that I introduced with Representative Cardenas would provide all Americans with access to testing, treatment, and immunizations for COVID-19 once they have a vaccine at no cost. Um, It provides support for our heroes with nearly a trillion dollars for state, local, territorial, and tribal governments. Um, And that money will help healthcare workers, police, fire, transportation, EMS, teachers, and other vital 
vital workers, um, you know, keep their jobs. And it's going to put money into the pockets of workers with a second round of direct payments to families up to $6,000 per household. Mm-hmm. New payroll protection measures to keep uh, workers connected to their jobs. And it would extend the $600 federal unemployment payments through next January. In addition to all of that, uh, one of the provisions that I really worked hard on was to help um, frontline workers, essential workers, get hazard pay. If you think about it, the government has deemed these workers essential. It's told them they must go into work every day. And um, every day that those workers show up to do their jobs, they put their, their health and their life at risk. And not just that, they put the health and well-being and the lives of their families at risk if they should bring COVID-19 home into their household. Absolutely. So I believe we, they ought to be compensated for that risk that they're taking on because the government is basically telling them that you must show up for work. Um, they should be compensated for that additional risk. And that's the same as the Coronavirus Frontline Workers Fair Pay Act, correct? Correct. Okay. Okay. Um, but if you think about it, there there's a lot of essential workers. It's very easy to see it in the context of healthcare workers, but there right. are a lot of essential workers that are not healthcare workers. I mean, um, the people who you know collect the refuse and the you know the postal workers and the folks that are in the food supply chain that are you know uh, making sure that we have food on the grocery store shelves that we can purchase and take home to our families. All of them are essential workers, and they all deserve to be compensated for the risks they take. Absolutely. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you're listening to my interview with Congresswoman Linda Sanchez. Going back to, because um, I think it's all under the same umbrella of race relations and uh, equality, we have census happening this year, and you've been an advocate to make sure that everyone is counted, including undocumented immigrants. Tell us about the importance of that. So the census is critical. Um, It is the way that um, government funding is determined uh, is by population and these formulas that are created by population. So if you have undercounting going on, um, you are missing out on important pockets of, or, or buckets, I should say, of federal money that could go towards things like early learning and education, job training, um, community clinics and hospitals. So, so many things are based on census that we really need everybody to participate in order to ensure that those resources are allocated according to where the need is greatest and where the population is greatest. And folks, uh, there are many areas in Los Angeles County, for example, that are considered hard to count areas. And we really want to get word out to people that it directly impacts the community um, when you don't participate in the census. We lose out on thousands of dollars per family, not to mention millions of dollars for the state if people sit on the sidelines and, and don't stand up and be counted. So we want to encourage everybody to um, participate in the census. And there's also often these misconceptions about the census. One of the biggest is that children don't need to be counted in the census. Children is are one of the biggest undercounted groups. If you have a child that is, 
you know, just a month old, um, they still are counted in the census. And the other um, sort of uh, uh, piece of information that folks don't realize is that everybody in the household needs to be counted. So if you have, you know, relatives like an aunt or a cousin or a grandmother that's living in the household, they need to be counted as well. If you have, um, you know, multiple families living in one home, everybody in that um in that household needs to be counted and uh so we're trying to get word out to people that's very important it directly affects the quality of life in communities it's safe it's confidential that information is not shared with any other government agency and so we really encourage everybody uh, to participate in the census yeah and we we need to keep talking about it because um you know it takes so many times of reminding people Every four years, uh, I feel like we are in this place where it's the most pivotal year. <laughs> but with this year, for sure, it's it's going to be a history-making year in terms of people really showing up, uh, showing up for the census and then showing up at the polls on November 3rd. It's, it's extremely important for people to do that. We can't talk about it uh, enough. So, uh, Congresswoman, I don't want to take too much of your time. I want to, if I may, just again, uh, change topics since today is the fourth anniversary of the Pulse nightclub shooting, you know, a mass terror act on the LGBTQ community in Orlando, uh, as well as we are in Pride Month, June, and Pride has sort of morphed into something different this year for good reason. Uh, it's so much more than about just LGBTQ pride, but pride in all of our communities, plural, especially marginalized uh, people and, and minorities. If you would share about your, your feelings about the anniversary of Pulse and Pride Month. Sure. Well, during Pride Month, I think it's important to remember that, you know, those started... Um, the genesis of that were the Stonewall riots and the gay liberation movement that followed because they were standing up against the mistreatment by the police department. Does that sound familiar? Right. Um, so while we've made progress as a country towards advancing the rights for the LGBTQ community, there still is a lot more that needs to be done. Um, the LGBTQ community faces prejudice and hate in many parts of the country. As you mentioned, um, uh, Friday, uh, the 12th of June, was the fourth anniversary of the Pulse nightclub shooting, which was one of the deadliest mass shootings in American history. And this shocks people, but in many states, uh, LGBTQ individuals can still be fired from their job or denied housing. Right. So um, there is a lot that we still need to do in order to fulfill the promise you know, of our constitution that everyone is created equal and um, will have equal access and e equal opportunity. Although we've come a long way, there is a lot more that we need to do. And in the House, we passed the Equality Act, which would prohibit discrimination against members of the LGBTQ community. But again, we still need the Senate um, to act on that. Yeah, absolutely. And we thank you for that, your support too. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with Congresswoman Linda Sanchez. Congresswoman, before we leave, um, I'd like to ask you if you want to add anything, um, any message to our listeners, even a, uh, any kind of a, a plan or 
call to action, if you will. Sure. Um, we, we have seen people raise their voices and, you know, um, go out and protest against systemic racism. We are still in the middle of a pandemic. So I would urge people that as you go out to make your voice heard, you still please be aware of um, making yourselves safe, wear a mask, try to social distance. Um, if you participate in activities where you know you can't social distance and um, you're in large crowds of people please go and get tested for COVID-19 to make sure um, that you are safe and not bringing you know uh, COVID into your household um, it's really critical that we translate the momentum that we have in these protests into another way that will bring about meaningful change and that's at the ballot box so this November is an election year Please, I'm begging people, participate in elections. They matter. They're important. They determine your leadership. They determine who will make laws and you know what those laws will look like. So we got everybody who was rightly protesting and you know has this righteous anger towards the disparate treatment in this country. If we could get all of them into um, the voting booth, we could make change happen on a grand scale as well. So I'm urging folks to stand up and be counted in the census. It matters. And please uh, participate in the elections this November. It matters. Brilliantly said. Uh, Congresswoman Sanchez, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, you know, Vic, could I add one more thing? Absolutely. Um, okay. It's important to remember that black and brown people are more likely to be essential workers and they're more likely to be exposed to the virus. Uh, for example, in Los Angeles County, data shows that COVID-19 is deadlier for people of color. So it makes sense that if we are requiring them to show up to work, we compensate them accordingly. Absolutely. It, it makes total sense. And I hope that our GOP leadership in the Senate, you know, something moves with them because uh, Democrats are certainly doing their, they're working for the American people and such as yourself. So thank you very much for that, Congresswoman. What a pleasure to be with you and thank you again for, for inviting me. You as well. Thank you. Good luck. All right. Be safe. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was California native Congresswoman Linda Sanchez. Thank you, Congresswoman. The Blunt Post with Vic. Dilmon Abdurkader is the co-founder and spokesperson for the American Friends of Kurdistan. Dilmon was born in Kirkuk and along with his family spent seven years at a refugee camp in Syria following the first Gulf War. Dilmon comes from a foreign policy and national security background where he was previously director of the Kurdistan Project at a DC policy shop. Dilmon received his MA at the American University in Washington, DC in international peace and conflict resolution. American Friends of Kurdistan is a bipartisan 501c4 nonprofit organization. AFK is created to strengthen, protect, and promote American-Kurdish relations and increase U.S.-Kurdistan national security interests.
Dilmon, thank you for being on the Blunt Post with Vic. Appreciate your time. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Vic. This is going to be great. So you are based out of Washington, D.C., correct? Correct. So before we get into American Friends of Kurdistan and what's happening with Kurdish people in different countries, just give me a general perspective on what's happening from your view, especially being in Washington, D.C. right now. Right. So the, the, the political perspective here uh, in regard to, to the Middle East is that the United States wants to lead the entire region, especially under this administration. What that means for somebody like me who is working on Kurdish issues, this is in a difficult position because minorities in the region require a, uh, a superpower like the U.S somebody that has an economic, humanitarian, and military responsibility in the region um, to stay in the region. And it does not matter which administration is, uh, is in control of the White House. So the endless war argument is um, very hot on the Hill, um, in the White House, um, and this is uh, one, of the, uh, one of the hurdles that we're currently facing. The... Americans leaving the Middle East alone, completely pulling out. I mean, is that even possible? Is that even, I mean, will that ever happen? Considering, you know, among many other things, U.S.'s interests in the Middle East. Right. I mean, realistically speaking, it's not possible. Uh, Rationally speaking, it's not the best strategy. Um, But unfortunately, we've seen that trend. We've seen it go towards that trend. We've seen it be more popular, where even... Americans are questioning why our presence in the Middle East is there. Um, what, what's it to us? Why do we have to pick up uh, the pieces? Um, you've heard, you know, the, the withdrawal since the withdrawal in 2019 from Syria, where the Kurds were uh, clearly betrayed there. The argument was that these guys have been fighting for centuries between the Kurds and the Turks. Um, and, you know, but unfortunately we've seen that being more, being more, uh, they're happening more often. So what we've seen uh, uh, in the past, just in recent weeks, the United States is pulling troops out of even Germany, where we've had a presence there since World War II. Right. So it's not even simply in the Middle East, it's going beyond that region. Um, and I think as an economic and military power for the United States, it's our responsibility and it's in our interest to be there. Um, and it doesn't have to be in an endless war strategy. We don't have to put 100 150,000 U.S. troops uh, on the ground. We don't have to put that many boots on the ground. We could do small strategic uh, military missions that will uh, that will benefit us, or that will bring positive returns to the American taxpayers. That's interesting that you say that. That's where the trend is and, and such. Let me ask you a redundant question. As an Armenian-American, I get asked <laughs> who are Armenians all the time. So, uh, just so that we don't take anything for granted, for listeners who may not be familiar, would you tell us who are the Kurds? Who are Kurdish people? Right. Uh, well, the Kurdish people are a distinct people that live in the Middle East that were promised their own nation. They've been the indigenous peoples of the region, by the way, um, that speak their own language, have their own dress, have their own culture. Um, have their own colors and flags and whatnot. Um, and they currently, they were promised a state at the end of World War One by the British and the French powers. 
However, they were ignored, and largely it was by Turkey when the founding of the Turkish state in 1923. Instead, now they are stuck in these four countries in Iraq, northern Iraq, uh, northeast Syria, southeast Turkey, and northwest Iran. Sure. And they number, and they number about 45 million plus. And there's a couple hundred thousand even Kurds in Armenia, for example. Sure. Uh, and the Kurds and Armenians share a historical relationship as well. Thank you for that explanation. It's it's good to have background and context. You know, Kurdish people, I always think that as the 20th century rolled out, Kurds found themselves uh, in between all these great powers and sort of left to be on their own. And there was a land grab. And uh, of course, I think about a third of Turkey's population is of are Kurdish, correct? That's right. About majority of the Kurdish population is actually in Southeast Turkey, which number about 20 to 25 million. So about 20 to 25 percent right. of and the 79 plus population is Kurdish. Right. And going back to what you were saying about the White House and wanting to, you know, what, what, what's their interest or American people asking, what is U.S.'s interest in being in the Middle East? Well, a lot of uh, Iraq's oil is in the northern part where it's majority Kurdish. And uh, what, uh, you know, Erdogan, the big dictator Erdogan's wish was, which he, uh, I guess some of it was granted when the U.S. troops pulled out and betrayed Kurdish, and he went in there and rolled out his massacre. You know, history repeated itself. Right. And, you know, let me just, uh, just to touch up on your point from the beginning, you know, the Armenians know exactly what the Kurds are going through today. Why? Sure. Because when the Armenian genocide occurred in 1915 by the Ottoman Empire, which right. is unfortunately still not recognized by the Turkish state, but since then, the Armenians have had a sense of security. Why? Because they have a state of their own. Sure. They have the self-determination. They have the protection of state security. They have the protection of airspace. Um, they have access to the international community and international bodies. Um, and this has allowed Armenians to prosper today in the 21st century. They are an example for the region. Now, if we compare that to the Kurds, the Kurds have not had that opportunity. And this is why Erdogan, the dictator, as you mentioned, is allowed to roam freely in broad daylight into, North, uh, into northeast Syria. He's allowed to kill Kurds without anybody standing up to him. He is allowed to uh, demographically change the, the, the region of the, uh, the indigenous population in these regions. And might I say that these regions that have Kurds in them, it's not only Kurds, for example, in northeast Syria, there's Armenian families, there's many Armenian villages right. in these areas as well that have fled from the Ottoman Empire back in 1950 from the genocide. Correct. But, uh, you know, fast forward 100 years later, these people are still fleeing from the same state, from these, uh, from these same people. Um, and unfortunately, that's why it's so critical for the United States as a superpower to be there. Because, you know, Turkey may be a NATO member on paper. The reality is, is that it's not behaving like a NATO ally. It's more behaving like, it, like an adversary. And the United States has to use its leverage to put Turkey in its position, you know. Turkey, you cannot continue to attack the indigenous population, the civilian population, and then on, all on the basis of terrorism. Uh, 
right answer. There are many other options that, that the U.S. can implement without pulling out. And remember, it was only 2,000 troops in Syria. So it wasn't like we had hundreds of thousands. We were doing solid work from an American perspective that has so much positive returns with only 2,000 U.S. troops. We, the United States had been controlled with their, with their Kurdish partners and also Arabs and Christians uh, of the region, 30% of Syrian territory. That makes sense to withdraw. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with Dilman Abdulkader, the co-founder of American Friends of Kurdistan. Yeah, and Turkey has been using their strategic location in the Middle East and the fact that there are U.S. military bases there to enforce a gag rule on D.C. and the White House. Uh, All the while, as you said, they're not really acting like an ally to the U.S., so I don't know why our politicians, and not just Republicans, but even Democrats, have placated to Turkey for so long. And, And to the point about Armenians having prospered because of you know having an actual state and that 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 came up that that took a while <laughs> you know armenia was part of the soviet union and only became a an independent republic once again in, in 91 and a great part of eastern anatolia is historic armenia it's historic western armenia and one of the things that turkey has done is for decades, they've tried to wipe any um, any traces or any evidence that Armenians were there, which I think is impossible, uh, from demolishing churches and monasteries and cities and villages. And and Kurdish people have a, I think, in some ways, even a more challenging um, scenario because, as you said, four countries are trying to sort of not acknowledge to say the least, of their Kurdish population and the lands that were historic Kurdistan. That's right. And, you know, to just give you a political perspective on the Turkish uh, issue and why the why Washington is uh, allowing Turkey to have its way uh, in the region, why Washington is allowing Turkey, you know, why, why are we turning a blind eye, you know, to put it in the basic terms? Largely, you know, the United States can pull out. There are alternatives. You mentioned strategic location in the region for Turkey, uh, uh, geographically. There are alternatives to Turkey. There's Greece. There's Armenia. There are There is Cyprus. There is Jordan. There is Israel. There is Egypt. And there is Kurdistan. So there are many alternatives. If, you, if, the United, if, if the reason is that, hey, we want access to the Middle East, we, we do have access to the Middle East via the Kurds, via via the Greeks, via the Armenians, via uh, the Cypriots. Um, so this is not the issue. The larger issue is that the United States is uh, in a sort of a, a another phase of the Cold War with Russia. The United States, the larger picture is that we're not so tied to Turkey as we think we are. The problem is, is that we just don't want Turkey, we don't want to lose Turkey to Russia. So Russia is the big issue. And we've seen the reality of the matter is that Turkey has shifted towards Russia, towards the east. And we have to acknowledge that this is the new Turkey. This is not the Turkey back in the days where, you know, they're a great NATO partner, they're reliable, they're, they want to be part of the European Union. This is no longer the Turkey. And unfortunately, you know, and Erdogan just recently won elections too, just a year and a half ago. 
but he's going to be in power for a few more years and much much after that as well. So I think uh, we have to just look at the reality. We have to uh, stand up to Turkey um, because Turkey, and as you said, most of those regions that is today modern Turkey belongs to the Greeks, belongs to the Armenians, belongs to the, uh, the Kurds. And, you know, there are alternatives to Turkey. And there are many minorities that are pro-American that we can uh, bolster and we can embolden to to be our friend and ally. Yeah, it's very layered. You know, it also, one of the things that Turkey is good at doing is buying billions of dollars worth of military equipment from the U.S. and then holding those contracts um, over U.S.'s head. And exactly. there's also That's the, like the, the, the partnership between Turkey and another dictatorship uh, state, Azerbaijan, which um, Azerbaijan being a new oil country and uh, the blackmailing and all the leveraging that they do to get their way. Uh, it's a very volatile situation, so I'm surprised that anyone, the White House or whoever, would think that pulling out of the Middle East is a good idea. But well, I want to make one point, and I want to have you talk about the American Friends of Kurdistan. The point I want to make is when last year, when President Trump pulled out of northern Iraq, what I was surprised to see is... Northeast Syria. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry, Northeast Syria. Um, yeah. So many Americans were very aware and really came out in support of the Kurdish people. There was a lot of, lot of noise, a lot more than I thought there would be. You know, that was a pleasant surprise. It was a hopeful thing to see. Yeah, no, I mean, I, that was great. Um, what President Trump did with that withdrawal, I just want to say real quick, is that it brought to the surface, both the left and the right, that, hey, the Kurds do have friends. You know, the Kurds have a saying, no friends but the mountains. But, you know, the Kurds have many friends in the, in the United States um, on both sides of the aisle, and that we're not alone, but we just have to... Uh, use this to our advantage and bring these people together and turn it into policy, translate this support into policy, rather this just social media effect. Right, absolutely. So, Dilman, you are the co-founder of American Friends of Kurdistan, and the name alone, it says a lot, but tell me about how you founded the organization, its objective, its mission, and anything else that you'd want to share. Right, definitely. Um, so American Friends of Kurdistan was actually, so I've been for a while for years thinking about creating an independent organization, an advocacy and education organization in Washington um, that speaks on behalf of the Kurds, but also supports American national security interests. We were going to do this regardless of the president's withdrawal from Syria back in uh, uh, October 2019, fast-tracked this, uh, this move to, hey, you know what, let's get to work, let's, uh, let's come out with this organization right away. So we launched back in uh, November 2019, just uh, less than a month after the withdrawal, and we got to work. Um, so it is today an, a, um, a, an independent organization that, you know, uh, advocates to strengthen American-Kurdish relations and, American, uh, and U.S.-Kurdistan relations. So when I mean Kurdistan, focuses on all four parts of Kurdistan in these countries that I mentioned earlier. Um, and the great thing about AFK is that we're not affiliated with any Kurdish government or political party. The benefit of that is that we're able to, yes, strengthen American-Kurdish relations, strengthen, strengthen the Kurdish
This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with Dilman Abdul-Kader, the co-founder of American Friends of Kurdistan. So if I am an average American living, I don't know, in the Midwest somewhere, and I barely know about the Kurdish people, why would I care? Why should I care? So the Kurds are something to understand, especially because the United States is involved, whether we like it or not, um, whether it's, uh, it, it aligns with our policy, our foreign policy individually or not. Um, the United States is present in the Middle East. But since the 2003 Iraq War, the United States has, does, unfortunately does not have many friends in the region. The United States is known for um, you know, bringing democracy over to the region. Um, and it hasn't resulted in any positive returns. The United States, so what this means is that the United States, and we've also sacrificed over Iraq alone, over 4,500 American lives in Iraq since 2002 over the course of 17 years. Why should you care about the Kurds? The Kurds are pro-American. They're pro-Western. They are peace-loving, uh, democratic people. Um, we want to be able to have our own state within, uh, uh, with self-determination. Um, and, you know, that, you know and the American soldiers and Kurdish soldiers have, have uh, established a great partnership, a successful partnership. Um, and aside from that, this is an investment for the U.S. in the region. It involves intelligence sharing between the two. There is uh, a uh, huge opportunity for economic uh, opportunities between the two nations. Uh, because the Kurdish region is resource-rich, not just in oil. We tend to think of oil automatically, but in agriculture, in tourism, um, access to the uh, to the rivers, the Euphrates rivers, the Tigris rivers, um, from you know from southeast Turkey all the way to uh, all the way to Iraqi Kurdistan, um, and also if we want to national security speaking, if we want to be uh, have a stronger uh, impact against our adversaries, the Kurds are in the heart of the Middle East. If you want to uh, push Iran back, if you want to limit Iran's capability of taking over the region, um, the Shia crescent, crescent we always hear about from Tehran, threatening Israel's northern border, the Kurds are at the heart of Iran's border. And the Kurds are the most experienced fighting force in the region as well, one of the most experienced fighting force in the region. It was the Kurds who defeated the uh, defeated Daesh, the Islamic State. They sacrificed the Kurds in Syria sacrificed over ten thousand plus lives. Right, and that was a that was a fourteen thousand wounded. Yeah, and, and a lot of people. And I hope you understand the question I asked was I was just being a devil's advocate when Trump decided to pull the troops out of northeast Syria and left Kurds uh, completely by surprise and, and defenseless. A lot of Americans came out and said, Kurds have been our friends. Kurds have been helping us to combat Daesh, ISIS, and yet that happened. So a lot happens all over the world that affects us Americans and in our daily lives. But we're either not aware of it or there's just too much information for people to process. So, you know, you you put that beautifully and explained the minutia of why the Kurdistan matters and the Kurdish people matter. Uh, so thank you for that. 
uh, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I want to ask you where you are as an organization. What are your immediate objectives? Are there any initiatives or any anything that you're working on in Washington, D.C.? Definitely. So we are a new organization, to keep in mind, since November. We've had about three and a half months of ability to work out in the public. Then COVID-19 hit, unfortunately, and it set us back. And, uh, but since then, you know, we've put out a lot of content. So currently we are in the uh, fundraising phase. Uh, we are always looking for uh, investment in our organization and donations in our uh, organization. Mm-hmm. People are truly care. Very good. Let me ask you this real quickly. Who are some of the members of Congress that are sympathetic to your cause and just to uh, Kurdish people, period? Who are your allies? Right. It's, it's a mix. I mean, uh, we have the Kurdish-American Congress, Congressman Rooney. We have um, Congressman Cicilline. We have Congressman Justin Arrakis. We have Senator Rubio. Um, even Senator Ted Cruz, I mean, he understands, they understand the region. They understand that the, the Kurds should have uh, self-determination to a certain degree. Um, so it's on both sides of the aisle, and that's the way it should be. And we po- approach both sides of the aisle. Because we have to keep in mind that our position as Kurds is fragile. It's, we cannot play the politics game, largely because at the end of the day, we have to communicate with whoever is in charge, and, you know, sure. we don't have much luck in the region, on the ground. Yeah, sure. I'm sure you understand. Just, just like the Armenian Genocide Resolution Act, it exactly. passed almost unanimously in the House and unanimously in the Senate, uh, which was just fantastic. And unfortunately, it was rejected by the administration. You know, and just so you understand, you know, we're full support. Sure. Uh, and a part of AFK's mission is also not just American-Kurdish relations. We want to advance the relations with our allies as well, and that includes Armenians, that includes the Greeks, that includes the Cypriots and Israelis, because I, in the future, as a uh, as an advocate for these uh, partnerships, see a relationship, a future alliance between Kurdistan, Armenia, Greece, Cyprus, and Israel. I, I see that as a wonderful and beautiful uh, and prosperous uh, alliance that could be possible. Yeah. All the countries that are regularly subjected to Erdogan's tirade and exactly. uh, and hateful <laughs> right? hateful speeches, <laughs> every few months he decides to put on a show. Yeah. Lastly, so if someone wants to, for those who want to be involved, help support your organization, can you once again repeat the website and just perhaps if there's a call to action. So uh, visit us at AmericanFriendsOfKurdistan.org. There you can find resources or social media access. You can contact me directly through our contact uh, page. And also you can invest and donate in our cause here. And, you know, the call to action is this is an important issue that it does matter. What happens there in the Middle East does not stay in the Middle East. It affects us at home. If we withdraw, we don't want these threats to come to come here to the United States where we are comfortable, safe, and secure. Um, and that's why we have to be present there and, and side by side, shoulder to shoulder with our forces. And one of those uh, forces and partnerships happens to be the Kurds. So anything that uh, we can do together, I'm here, contact me, and we can work together. Well said. Thank you, Dilman. Appreciate your time. And um, good luck with the American Friends of Kurdistan. Thank you, Vic. This was great. I enjoyed it. 
That was Dilmon Abdulkader from the American Friends of Kurdistan. Thank you, Dilmon, for being on the show. The Blunt Post with Vic. The organization I'd like to feature on today's show is NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. The NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund is America's premier legal organization fighting for racial justice. Through litigation, advocacy, and public education, LDF seeks structural changes to expand democracy, eliminate disparities, and achieve racial justice in a society that fulfills the promise of equality for all Americans. LDF also defends the gains and protections won over the past 75 years of civil rights struggle and works to improve the quality and diversity of judicial and executive appointments. If you'd like more information, please visit their website, which is NAACPLDF.org. I have three quotes for you today. They're inspirational quotes about voting. The first one is from Plato. He said, one of the penalties for refusing to participate in politics is that you end up being governed by your inferiors. The second quote is from President John F. Kennedy. He said, the ignorance of one voter in a democracy impairs the security of all. The third one is from George Jean Nathan. He said, bad officials are elected by good citizens who don't vote. You're going to want to save the date for June 27th. Uh, it's Pridecast Live uh, on Saturday, June 27th from 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. A special 11-hour Pride programming presented by KPFK, The Blunt Post with Vic, and the Stonewall Democratic Club. Pridecast Live is on the same day as Global Pride, and it's in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. We have uh, just incredible programming uh, planned for you, uh, original shows, interviews um, with leading queer politicians, panel discussions, music, variety shows, and lots more. So remember to save the date for Saturday, June 27th. It will be live on KPFK and live stream on kpfk.org. On that note, check out the Blunt Post's list of top 100 LGBTQ-friendly companies, businesses, and organizations list at top100lgbtq.com. That's top100lgbtq.com. Before I go, I'd like to uh, thank my hardworking producer, Ricky Herrera, as always. And thank you for being with me again on the Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. Uh, for more information, please visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie. Both Twitter and Instagram are at Vic Jaramie. V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.